Hey, Daryl. Daryl, you're. Um, are you there? There. Can you hear me now? Ah, uh, yes, I can hear you. Okay, great. How are you, Richard? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, let's just give people a few minutes. This is something new. I have no idea how many people are going to show up, but hopefully, hopefully we get a nice turnout. We'll just get started. I we'll start. At, uh, we'll start at eight on the hour. Okay, sounds good. How's the volume for me? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, you sound fine. Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome uh, to the call-in uh, app. I guess welcome to my show. Uh, this is, um, you know, this is something new. Uh, I don't know how often I'm going to do this, but uh, basically, I think I'm just going to grab interesting people or things that uh, catch my eye from Twitter, um, and then just, you know, or elsewhere, and just sort of, you know, have conversations on a. I don't know, a weekly basis, a couple times a week. Um, so our first uh, guest here is uh, uh, Daryl Paul. Uh, he's a professor at uh, Daryl. Actually, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for uh, having me on, Richard. So I'm uh, Daryl Paul. I'm professor of political science at Williams College in Massachusetts. Uh, currently, I'm also the chair of the political economy program. Okay, great. And I invited you on because there's an article uh, you wrote for uh, Compact. Um, you know, so I, just for the listeners, I think what we're going to do is we'll do, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes of conversation, and then we'll just open it up for another uh, 15, 20 minutes of, of questions. Uh, so you are uh, you're, you're a professor of political science, and uh, you, you know, I've seen you on Twitter for a while, but uh, which what caught my eye recently was this article that you published in Compact Magazine. And I had a little a mini-tweet thread critiquing uh, parts of it, and then uh, uh, Sorab uh, got a little bit mad at, mad at, <laughs> mad at me, but that's, that's okay. Uh, so can you just uh, so you sort of, so this article actually, so I was reading it, I skimmed it yesterday, and then I was um, going to go back and read it more fully, and then suddenly I was paywalled. Um, it was it worked yesterday, but it doesn't work today. Uh, so I, I I didn't actually finish the whole thing, although I skimmed most of it. Uh, can you just for the audience just sort of explain what the article is and what's what's its argument? Sure. So as uh, I assume everybody knows, the writers don't make the headlines; the editors do. But this is a headline that that I think describes my piece well. And so it's called "Right Populism Needs Left Economics." And so it's uh, kind of a reflection on where populists or especially right populists have been over the last, oh, I don't know, five to seven years, I guess I'd say. 
And in particular, in uh, the mid 2010s, it looked like there was this kind of big wave of right populism coming, right populist kind of coming into government in various places and, and obviously in places like Hungary and Poland, uh, but also in the Western Europe, 2016 happens, we get uh, Brexit and then we get Donald Trump. And so it seems like it's kind of going from strength to strength after that as well. Um, 2018 is kind of the high watermark. And if you want, you know, we can kind of talk a bit about uh, why I say that. Uh, but I think the right populists have kind of been coming down off the boil, uh, as it were, since 2018. And so I'm kind of trying to think about why that is. I don't, I wouldn't really call my piece a, a work of social science per se. I mean, I think I have some ideas on why that might be. And I, I talk about some of those in the piece. But it's also kind of an argument of a political direction that at least I would like uh, to see right populists go, which is to hold on to the social conservatism, for lack of a better term, or traditionalism, I guess you might say. Um, but for the right, depending on the country, obviously, uh, to move further to the left on economics. And I think that's particularly the case in Western Europe, and, and I would put the United States in that uh, latter category as well. So the uh, the article it's it's uh, the headline is why the right needs left to side. It's it's an electoral argument, um, and I, I presume it's a uh, it's a belief about the uh, uh, you know the the worthiness of, of the of the substantive policies of moving economically left. That is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It's 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 trying to do both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but it, the the argument the argument is just simply. I mean, it's, it's the political case, which, which is fine. I mean, that's what I that's what I focused on. That's that's interesting in and of itself uh, uh, to discuss. Um, so one thing. I mean, one thing you had uh, the um, the, you know, the 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 big piece of empirical uh, like quantitative data you have was basically uh, there was a chart with an x axis that said um, uh, economic you know conservatism. There was a scale and then social conservatism. And your argument was that the uh, uh, the, the the people with social uh, conservative social views that were more left wing on economics were doing better electorally. Is that right? Um, to to some degree, right? Uh, and so so one of the things. So if if any of if any of the listeners have seen this um, on Compact, you'll you'll know the little bubble chart that I that I put together. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you can go to my Twitter feed and it's there. Um, I think it's quite a nice uh, scatter plot. I worked hard on it. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, it's got, uh, yeah, it's got these two axes, uh, as, as Richard described. And uh, I've got two colors, right? The blue colors are Western European or, you know, sort of non, non-former Soviet bloc countries. So Greece would kind of be in there, uh, Western, quote unquote, Europe. And then uh, the former Soviet bloc states are in red. And so, um, yeah, what you can just see, I mean, the, the, the beginning of it, right, is really just a descriptive case, right, or, or a description of how um, political parties uh, write political parties. And I've got a definition, and I could kind of go into that. It's a bit boring. Um, but write political parties and how they arrange themselves on these two axes. And so what I observe, and the data is coming from this thing called the Chapel Hill Experts Survey. I'm going to talk about the value of that and the accuracy and et cetera. Um, but what they do is they essentially look at, um, they look at the platforms of political parties in Europe and they give scores to things, you know, and they have lots and lots of variables in the data set. But anyway, the two that I pulled out were the, the economic, essentially left, right on economics, and then the more kind of social science languages, the Galtan axis, right? This, 
um, kind of social and cultural conservatism or libertarianism um, on the other. And so I just kind of noticed that in uh, Central Europe, you see a very different kind of um, correlation, if you will, than you see in Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, uh, the parties that are more socially conservative are more economically left, if you will, um, and interventionist, we could say that. And the parties that are less socially and culturally conservative are more um, kind of laissez-faire, if you will, in economics. And it's a pretty strong uh, uh, correlation. In the West, uh, not really much of a correlation, but to the extent that there's anything, it goes the way that I think a lot of Americans would expect it to go. That is, you're socially and culturally conservative, you're also economically could say conservative in a liberal, or sorry, in a, in a European sense, we'd kind of say liberal or, you know, kind of laissez-faire, if you will. So it kind of starts from that observation and also incorporates this observation that populist parties in Western countries, in Western Europe, um, I think have a much narrower uh, policy profile, if you will. Uh, they tend to be heavily concentrated in immigration and to some extent, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of law and order questions, um, where I think the, the ones that are doing um, better in the East or Central Europe um, have a broader kind of palette, if you will, of different kinds of policies. And so the ones that I pull out in the piece are law and justice in Poland, Fidesz in Hungary, and then to, to some extent, I think this is a, a, a less um, a, a less clear case, but the Croatian Democratic Union uh, Party in Croatia. So some of this depends on what you think a populist is, of course. There are plenty of right parties in Western Europe that do just fine. Um, you know, Christian Democrats, Christian Social Union in places like Germany, conservatives in the UK. But if we want to call something populist, I think it's pretty clear that the populists are doing better in Central Europe than they are in the West. Yeah, so uh, you know, I looked at the uh, chart, and um, you know, I don't know a lot about all those all those parties highlighted, but you know, because of the controversy over Hungary and because it's uh, in the news a lot, and because it's doing something interesting, I knew a little bit about uh, Hungary. So, uh, Fidesz is considered very. Um, uh, very sort of left wing on economics, uh, as far as that in that graph on that x axis. Um, but you know, I, I, from what I know, and then I looked up some you know some more things. Um, you know, under under Orban, I mean, the, the country has for have for example a fifteen uh, percent flat tax. I mean, in the American context, that that would be like you know uh, Paul Ryan's dream. I mean, no progressive <laughs> income income tax. Um, there's a uh, you know, there's uh, they're, they're open to uh, international trade. They, there was something, you know, the, the, the foreign uh, direct investment is, you know, off the charts. So if you want to say, you know, economic uh, uh, leftism is about, you know, protecting uh, uh, jobs at home and like a kind of mercantilism or protectionism, Hungary doesn't do that either. Uh, so a lot of these states, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not just, I, I'm just using one example, but I know that the, um, I know at least in the hung Hungary case, it doesn't it doesn't strike. I mean, the the words rated there doesn't doesn't strike me as uh, as accurate. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? No, it's a, it's a good point, and you know, all of these kinds of social science measures are obviously going to have to make some choices. And I, I know you, Richard, have had lots to say in the past <laughs> about social science and measuring of things and whatnot. Yeah, and I think a lot of the comments you made on Twitter um, are are quite uh, appropriate. Um, so I, I take all of that, uh, and I think it's it's a good point. And, and 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 certainly when one thinks about, like for example, tax policy, yeah, it's a good point, right? Fidesz has a flat tax, which is kind of typically thought of as being quite a kind of 
right or or you know kind of more libertarian if you will attitude rather than kind of a graduated income tax for example um so i guess where so I, I didn't kind of dig into the the data set but certain in terms of kind of thinking about how do they put these measures together but certainly when one thinks about um fidesz and and the thing the, the thing the two of the things that i talk about in the the piece which i think are typically thought of as more at the very least interventionist, I don't know if we really necessarily want to call it left, economic policy are things like industrial policy and, and family policy. So one of the ways that Fidesz um, pays for a pretty generous family policy system and spends quite a lot as a percentage of GDP at least on family policies is by taxing foreign capital. Um, and so Germ Germany is, is, I don't want to say dependent, but Germany relies a lot on Hungarian labor to uh, build a lot of its industrial goods. And so um, Hungary is kind of, at least for now, right, found a sweet spot where they can tax foreign capital pretty highly. Um, now, obviously from Germany's perspective, it's not particularly high, but for Hungary, I guess, because of the big um, welfare gap, if you will, it seems pretty high. And then take that tax money and devote it to, um, you know, kind of, I don't know if we would call it activist government policies. And I think that's an important part here too, because one of the things that prompted me to write this piece was this piece that uh, in Compact uh, that um, Sorba Mari had written when he was kind of reflecting on Jacobin magazine and them talking about the, the possibilities for, I think one of the phrases was, was a, a conservative welfare state. And essentially, the Jacobin author's argument was, this is impossible, right? You have a welfare state that is very left-wing, or you don't have one at all. And so thinking about, especially Poland and Hungary, um, and thinking about a lot of the social policies that they do, I don't think they look like what you'd find necessarily in a Sweden. Um, but they look a lot more interventionist and a lot more robust than certainly something I think you'd find in the United States. And so kind of thinking about, you know, the audience, I'm assuming that it's mostly Americans who are reading this kind of stuff, was hoping to kind of open up a space for conservatives, social conservatives, certainly at least in the U.S., to kind of think about economics in, in, a, in a broader way and think about how economic policy might be able to pursue certain kinds of socially conservative ends rather than necessarily socially liberal ones. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, we, yeah, the, I mean, it, it's not the chart's fault. I mean, it's hard to put all the stuff on one axis and say, this is right-wing economics or this is left-wing economics. Um, so I think, I think what you're getting at and sort of what's, what's uh, something that, you know, conservatives might be interested in, you could call it a left-wing policy, or you can call it a right-wing policy is things like support for uh, childbearing, right? For families who have children. Now, you know, to me, it's 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 something where you know I can go either way on. I mean, that we had a we had an experiment with um, uh, giving uh, money to unweddies in the United didn't work out very well. I think the, the historical record on that was was pretty bad. Um, you know, a family policy aimed at you know uh, uh, actual family, you know <laughs> people who are married. Uh, you know, that I, that's obviously going to have uh, much fewer uh, pathologies. Um, how do, you, how, do you, how do you think about it? How do you think, you know, right-wing populists do or, or should think about these things? I, I, saw some, I saw some things they were debating in Congress a while back. And, you know, the idea in the American, con you know, they were trying to find some uh, bipartisan uh, compromise on child subsidies. 
And it ended up, you know, it would, it would go to basically everybody um, who had kids. And, you know, I was thinking, yeah, if you're going to have a bipartisan compromise, I mean, you know, the state of our politics is not going to allow uh, restrictions to, you know, married couples or something like that, in which case, you know, I, I became very, uh, very hesitant about that policy or so very skeptical of it. Uh, so how, how do you think about these things? I guess I'm I'm more inclined towards the universalist policies, I think, probably than you are, Richard. Um, and, and and so thinking especially right about the the child um, child grants, I'm not sure exactly what we called them, right? That that came through uh, COVID and obviously was in um, in the tax policies for last year, um, and that expired. Of course, it didn't get renewed. But but something more like that, a, a, a child grant, if you will, or some kind of um, kind of monthly payment, or maybe it comes back through in your taxes. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to, you know, kind of be a, a policy wonk too much here. Um, so, so I think there's lots of different ways one could do this, but at least if, if one is thinking about kind of targeted policies for the poor, or as you suggest, maybe targeted policies for married couples versus kind of universalist policies, I guess I'm more inclined to the universalist ones in part because I think it doesn't as much at least build a kind of state bureaucracy, um, which, you know, so for example, if you, if you kind of think about some of the things that, that Hungary and Poland do under their so-called right-wing populists, um, certainly they're right-wing, I don't know if we'd even think of them as populists anymore, um, governments, is a lot of it is kind of cash payments to families, um, which is rather different from, at least certainly I think in the United States, a lot of things that Democrats to the left want to do. They want, tend to, I think, want a much more kind of robust uh, bureaucratic structure that can sort of guide families and intervene in a much more robust way rather than, you know, sort of giving families money and essentially it, trusting that they're going to spend that money uh, in productive ways in particular on their children. Um, is it gonna happen every time? Well, surely not, right? Um, but I think the, 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 the likelihood is, is high that they will do so. And, and I think it would be money well spent. Um, we'd have to obviously kind of study these things. And there have been studies of um, kind of universal basic income types of policies, uh, like back in the 70s and I think in the early 80s, there were lots of studies on this. And, and, and I think some of the evidence is salutary. And I think looking at what happens in Europe, uh, these kinds of things are just really common. Right? It's not just a, a Fidesz or a law and justice. You know, they're going on in Finland, they're going on in Sweden, they're going on in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. So we could call that, I guess, moving left. Um, I guess we'd call it moving European in some sense, since it seems like a lot of left and right uh, parties uh, do this in Europe. So whatever that direction is called, um, I'd, I'd like to see the U.S. move in that direction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, the so the and uh, uh, you know ch uh, children. Uh, there, this is there's a something called the Heckman curve, where the earlier you uh, invest in children, supposedly um, the uh, you know the the more uh, the payback to society. There was a, a guy named Jordan Lasker who did a report for CSPI, really taking apart a lot of this literature about the uh, uh, the benefits of you know childhood uh, uh, transfers. Uh, there's been some maybe some studies that show some things, but I mean it's hard to find sort of consistent uh, results over over time. So people are interested in this question i encourage them to uh to read up on it um the uh um 
Okay, so yeah, I mean that's I guess that's enough for that for that article. Uh, you know, I'm looking at your uh, what, uh, website, and, uh, and you teach interesting classes. So you teach one on meritocracy, right wing populism, uh, uh, sex, marriage, family. Uh, so really, a lot of interesting topics. Um, the uh, so what's it like? I mean, what's it like? The I've never been on a college campus regularly, and in, in, uh, since you know the world went crazy, uh, what's it like these days? <laughs> um. It's, it's, a, it's a good question because there's lots of, there's lots of reasons to think that, that there's a lot of crazy things going on on college campuses, and, and one is right to think that. Um, that being said, I don't think that we are really anywhere near where we were, at least I think on college campuses, back before COVID. Um, so, for example, um, when in, in early 2019... Um, Williams had a big kind of blow up, if you will, on campus. Uh, this was the spring of 2019 around race. And it was very similar. It was, you know, not quite as exciting as the kinds of things that happened, say, for example, at Yale with, you know, Nicholas Christakis on the quad being sort of yelled at by students for four hours straight kind of thing. It wasn't quite like that. But we certainly had our own version of that. And of course, there was the incident at, um, oh gosh, Evergreen, right? Evergreen State uh, University in, out in, um, in Washington. Right. And so I, I think a lot of that stuff I, I don't see very much anymore. And I certainly don't see that at Williams. Um, that being said, you know, there's, there's a good amount of wacky stuff <laughs> going on on college campuses. And um, I guess a lot of it doesn't feel as political, I guess I'd say it that way, as it did um, certainly when Trump was president. And I suspect that Trump's presidency was kind of an accelerant to a lot of the political consternations that were going on, especially on college campuses. Now it seems to be in a more kind of almost psychological direction. And so you hear a lot about, you know, mental health, you hear a lot about stress. You hear a lot about, um, you know, students' difficulties in kind of coping with the daily life. Um, and so it's not, I would say, quite as politicized as it was, you know, before COVID. Hmm. That's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like, the, you know, the uh, mental health rhetoric and the sort of the left-wing identity politics, it sort of seems like they're, they're becoming almost indistinguishable. Uh, from one another, right? You'll see people, they'll say, oh, you can't have this, you know, this speech, but, you know, you can't uh, talk about, you know, insensitive ideas, you can't misgender people because, uh, you know, somebody's mental health is at stake. I mean, the, even on the, the, especially on like the trans issue, I mean, it's like, you know, if you say the wrong word, like you'll be responsible for hundreds of suicides. I mean, it's really, the language, I mean, is just incredible. I mean, it's like, oh, you're, you're always in a crowded theater. And if you say anything wrong about trans in particular, um, you know, it's like we're yelling fire in a, in a crowded theater. I mean, it's really, it's really over the top. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, it seems like there's uh, do you, do you see it as like there's these, these energies and there's these sort of, uh, uh, you know, this sort of, this sort of personal discontent and it just sort of needs a, it needs an outlet. And what, what the outlet is, is based on the news. So like in 2016, it's Trump when he gets elected, uh, you know, it, then George Floyd happened. So, you know, there, there's the black lives matter stuff, you know, there's COVID. It seems like they go through these cycles and they, these things all have something in common and that they are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of a freak out over something that's happening in the news. Uh, but they, you know, they seem to have like a lot of, un, you know, underlying issues. Uh, so, you know, there, there seems to be a thread running all through that. Uh, you know, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this 
kind of sense of, of underlying discontent is a good one because, yeah, it, it does seem to move um, pretty rapidly. And, and I, I assume lots of the listeners are familiar with the rather kind of flippant uh, phrase that one sees on Twitter. And I have to admit, I've, I've used it myself, right? The, the current thing. Yeah. Um, you know, what's the current thing? And, and so just the ability to kind of flit from one current thing to the other over the course of, you know, three or four months. And then everyone's excited. It's the same people, right? Are excited about X and then they're excited about Y and then they're excited about Z. And there does seem to be, um, it's going to be something, right? Uh, that, that is making people susceptible uh, to this. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what that might be. Um, I mean, I you know, can make some guesses. And I, and I think some of the Kind of left-wing answers to this are at least interesting to think about. Um, think of kind of sensitivity to class status. Um, there's the kind of the, the the downward mobility among professionals, or at least the children of professionals, um, and this kind of fear that you know things won't be things won't be as I kind of hoped and and really kind of deserve that they should be. Um, because, you know, I went to an elite school and I, you know, got whatever grades I got. And if you're going to an elite school, you're probably getting A's. And, uh, and, and then yet, you know, there's something that comes after that, that, that there's some discontent. And, and so uh, back in March, I had written a piece for, um, excuse me, Wesley Yang's Substack and was kind of thinking about this kind of woke capital phenomenon. And, and, and I think that there there probably is something there, right? That there is a, a, a kind of a politicization, but a politicization that's very much directed towards, I guess one might call it health, safety, well-being, kind of psychological uh, states. And uh, you can see it expressed through, through um, uh, employees, right? Employees working for big corporations who want their corporations to be expressions of their own passions and values and certainly you obviously see that on college campuses as well yeah the status thing is interesting and you know it's uh hard to think about you know what the uh you know like it's 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 you know difficult to predict so you have more people going to college uh and so what does that do does that make people feel more confident or do people in college feel less confident because there's you know nothing to separate them from other people right if you're you know you're sort of an elite if you went to college 30 years ago you were you 40 years ago you know you were what 10 20% of the population now you're you know 40% of the population you know there's a influence there i think you're i think you're um you might be a you know too polite a guy to to talk about this i mean but you know the mental health this is not a this is not a gender neutral issue, right? I mean, they, you know, people talking about their mental health is under threat because, you know, somebody is saying ideas that they find uh, frightening, people talking about their safety. You know, I, I wrote a, you know, very popular Substack on this, you know, uh, uh, women's tears win in the marketplace of ideas. And it's not just, you know, men and women are different. It's that we we react to men and women in completely different ways. Uh, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but would you have, the, would you, would you have any uh, observations from being on a campus about that? Um, let me say two things on that, Richard. <laughs> uh, using my words carefully here. Well, yeah, I don't One, want to get you I in trouble. Say, I will say that your your piece, Women's Tears, um, was a point of some real uh, insightful conversations among uh, friends of mine at Williams College. I'll just put it that way. Oh. I mean, I, I personally was just extremely struck by that piece. And and thought that that you had kind of encapsulated certain ideas 
and it and and kind of got to the heart of something that I had been thinking about for quite a long time and just couldn't really find a way to think about it constructively. So I'll say that. Well, thank you. That, that's that's flattering. Yeah, I'd like to inspire. No, it, it really was. It was kind of like a gosh, like a like a like the clouds kind of open and I saw <laughs> in a clear way. Like, like, not like, oh, I'd never thought about this before. That wasn't the case, but it was, I'd thought about yeah. it and felt like I was just muddled in my thinking of it. And so this was really, um, really an impressive thing. And, and was, was it, was a conversation among faculty or students who, 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 uh, who's, among, uh, who's among, among faculty. Yeah. Okay. I'd be impressed if, if that reached the students, but yeah, I'll take, I'll take the faculty. <laughs> that's, that's still great to hear. But, but this is something that I had kind of noticed in particular around, um, around the big blow up at Evergreen uh, back all those years ago, what, 2016, 17, I don't know. It was a while ago now. That, that there's something about cancel culture and something about the way that women fight that's different from the way that men fight. And, 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 and I think so much of what you talk about in that piece was kind of around that issue. Um, and so, so the, the second thing I was going to say is that um, I'm trying to put together something that's a bit more kind of academic on the woke capital phenomenon from what I wrote back in March. And I'm going to try to incorporate um, some of this, you know, kind of gender stuff uh, in that idea because I think it's really, really fruitful. And I think it's really important, too, because I think it explains some dimension of the phenomenon that we're, we're seeing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I missed what, what you're going to try to incorporate it into what? Oh, so I'm I, I'm writing a piece uh, that's kind of expanding this woke capital idea in a in a little bit more academic way. Um, so I kind of have a um, the 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 piece I wrote for Wesley Yang. Um, you know, is a little bit more kind of popular, and I'm I'm not trying to get too social sciencey in it. So the piece that I'm writing over the summer um, is uh, is going to be a little bit more not super social sciencey. I'm not. You know, not going to lay on a whole bunch of, of jargon and whatnot, but it's going to try to be a little bit more rigorous in the argument about where I think this woke capital phenomenon comes from. And I think in part, I think there is a, a gender dimension to this. I just think it can't be denied. Yeah. Would you like to give us a, just a little bit uh, a summary or preview of what, what that argument's going to be? <laughs> so, uh, so, so what I said in, in the, the Wesley Yang Substack piece back in March and, and what I'm going to try to develop um, uh, this, this piece should be coming out in, in American Affairs. I don't know when. Um, write it over the summer, and it'll come out after that. Um, but but there's lots of, I guess one might say, kind of theories, if you will. Maybe that's a bit too elevated of of where this what capital phenomenon comes from. And so you get arguments that you know it's kind of fundamentally rooted in the customer base of corporations right so you have a bunch of rich liberal consumers you're gonna you know kind of perform wokeness for them to try to cultivate a consumer base i don't think that's wrong by any means uh another one is you know all this esg stuff right environment social governance um investing principles and so you know if blackrock says you know you got to do the woke dance then you do the woke dance right that kind of argument and and then we have um uh, we have a, I don't know. I mean, I hear a lot of left-wing people make this argument. It's amazingly uncharitable though to the left. It says essentially that left-wing people are really stupid and easily hoodwinked by corporations who pretend to be woke, but are really not woke at all. 
and yet left people just kind of say, oh, I'm so happy that they support same-sex marriage. I really don't care that they're operating, you know, sweatshops in Vietnam. I mean, you actually have left-wing people who make this case. So what I, what I argued in that earlier piece, and I want to develop more, is an angle that focuses especially on the employees of corporations. Um, there was a letter that came out oh, I want to say a week, maybe two weeks ago from employees at Apple. And I thought this was just a pristine instance of, of what I have in mind. So if you saw it, any of the listeners saw this, um, Apple uh, said to its employees, you have to start coming back to work in person. They had an extremely liberal kind of remote work policy. And um, I mean, obviously lasted an extremely long time too just now are they beginning to force their employees back to work and they're not even forcing them to come back in person five days a week um it's it's, it's a little bit of a kind of an ease in anyway what happened is a whole bunch of employees signed a letter that condemned this policy and they condemned it in every way that you've ever heard uh kind of college <laughs> campus activists condemn what's going on on their own colleges it's racist, it's sexist, it's this, it's that, it's, you know, it, it's, it's unequal, it's punishing so-and-so, whatever it is, right? The, essentially, their argument, I think it's fair to say, wound up being, we have a human right to work remotely for Apple, and you are stealing this right from us. And it was an amazing thing. But what, what was, was so amazing to me, I thought, was that it sounds exactly like what you hear from college students mm -hmm. and, and and but it's probably the case right that the people who wrote that letter probably were on college campuses and probably were of a somewhat activist set or at least kind of sympathetic to yeah. activists on college campuses not very long ago and so i think they're taking a lot of the the kind of culture um and values of the activist groups on college campuses and bringing it right into corporate america yeah, I think that's right. You know that that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the uh, you, the other, uh, um, you know, it, it's it's sort of uh, you know I talked to my friend Gabe Rossman about this because I, I you know the employees is is a, is unquestionably something that that is important and the pressure is coming from below. Um, you know this this sort of is um, problematic I think for some left wing economic theories about, that have the sort of the you know the boss you know just being able to you know do whatever they want. It seems like the uh, the workers do have a lot of power, right? Um, and, uh, you know, they can, uh, they can sort of shape the ideology of the company. Um, you know, the civil right, the civil rights law is a big thing. Uh, I think my friend Gabe Rossman says it's like a force multiplier because you have these ideas and then you have this thing where it's like, you know, you can't really have a hostile work environment, you know, environment, whatever that means, uh, towards women and, and minorities. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's a few things going on here. I'm glad, you know, you're thinking about it and it's worth, it is worth thinking about these things. Uh, okay, uh, so yeah, with that, um, somebody writes. Uh, so we apparently we could comment. Here. People can have comments. Richard, you are two times as loud as Daryl. Yeah, I'm sorry. I have no idea what to what to do about that. Uh, maybe I'm too quiet. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just it's just the connection. I don't know. Sometimes when podcasts get produced um, afterwards, they do. Um, I don't know if this 
uh, app automatically does that, but they they try to uh, uh, decrease any uh, any uh, difference between the two uh, the, between the speakers. So maybe maybe it'll do that for people listening later. Uh, okay, so um, you know I'm willing to take you know questions for 15, 20 minutes. Anybody wants to ask anything, uh, me, Daryl, about a conversation or, or anything else, uh, here's your chance. No questions, or, or is there not a way to? Let me see. How do people ask questions? I think you like. There's a thing to like raise your raise your hand. Okay. If there is, there are either there are no questions, or people can't figure out how to ask questions. Uh, <laughs> so okay then. I'll, I will. Uh, we'll we'll wrap this up. Um, Anything else you want to say, Daryl? Anything else uh, you're working on right now besides the American Affairs piece? Um, oh, wait. Yeah, somebody – uh, hold on. Somebody says they're in the – actually, answer this question. Somebody says they're – I'm just – people are asking questions. I'm not seeing it, but go go right ahead. Oh, me or the speaker? No, no, you. Go ahead. Yeah, just answer the question. Uh, uh, what uh, what else are you working on? And then we'll go, we'll go to – we have at least one questioner. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so in, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of more popular pieces, that's – that's what I've got on my plate. This kind of woke capital piece. Um, you know, I'm 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 still doing regular old scholarship and still interested in that, and so um, have a research project on on civic nationalism and uh, its connections to ethnic nationalism, and so uh, got a particular interest in in Scotland, and so kind of have have that on the back burner. But you know, teaching at a liberal arts college, everything goes on the back burner uh, during the semester, and so. Uh, when when summer comes, I'll drag that to the front. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So, um, all right. So, caller. So, is this? I think Johnny invites. So, Johnny, I'm trying to let you speak. Um, go ahead if if you can. Hmm. Got to unmute. Yeah, are you are you mute? Are you mute, Johnny? Invite to speak. Okay. There, there you go. There you go. I had to accept the uh, the invitation to speak. I got it. Okay. Uh, all right, Professor. I had a question for you uh, with the. Uh, with a better understanding of modern monetary theory uh, over the last 20 years, do you think that it poses uh, a sufficient enough uh, threat, I guess, or opposition to the current neoliberal era that we're living in? Um, so I guess I, I, I've kind of taken a, a, a tour, a, a, an opinion tour, if you will, of, of modern monetary theory, because I used to be more kind of open to it than I think I am now. So um, I, I think the underlying argument from modern monetary theory is right. That is, it's a kind of a state theory of money. I think that's right. I, I think that's where money comes from, not necessarily, but at least in kind of the world we actually live in. Um, and, and so therefore the state has an ability to produce money in a way um, that can address certain kinds of economic problems. The thing is, is that um, I don't think anybody knows how much money should be 
produced and, and whether the state can kind of actually control that spigot in a, in a way that's not reckless and destructive. I mean, the, the, the way that the, um, the, the American economy certainly kind of just turned almost on a dime from having almost no inflation at all. And, and, and it seemed right like an, an inability of the, both the central bank and the treasury to produce any inflation at all. And all of a sudden we're at the highest inflation rate that we've had in 40 years. Um, there's certainly a question about how much inflation is too high, by which I would say, you know, kind of in a traditional economic sense, um, when it starts to affect real growth. But even if you're below that line, and, and I've seen studies that suggest that, you know, you can probably push up maybe even to 20% inflation and not harm real growth. Um, certainly probably under 10, you, you, you would be okay. But you're gonna exacerbate all kinds of political problems and political tensions. Um, at the very least, you're gonna make uh, middle-class people extremely angry. And, um, and, and so therefore there's, I think, a lot of political implications uh, from higher inflation that I don't think MMT thinks very seriously about. I, uh, from what I have read of MMT, I think they don't have a good sensibility about politics, even if I think some of their economics is, is not too bad. Uh, Japan's been trying to inflate their currency for over 25 years, and they've got, a, what, 250%, right? And they can't do Indeed. it, right? Indeed, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, if you believe Paul Krugman, right, Paul Krugman's answer. Yeah, well, they, just, Paul Krugman. they haven't tried hard enough, right? Try more. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, right. so. I mean, it, it's funny, though, right, because Japan has, at least from what little knowledge I have of Japan, this ability to kind of repress finance and to kind of force savings in various ways that is probably not very conducive to inflation. Yeah. So I think there's some larger kind of situations, kind of structural issues with the okay. Japanese economy that are quite different uh, from ours in the U.S. So, so again, there's you know, no, if you've got, yeah, I'm go sorry, ahead, go I'm ahead, sorry. John. So there's no defeating neoliberal, at least not through modern monetary <laughs> Neoliberalism <laughs> is going to live on. I'll say this. I think one of the most important characteristics of neoliberalism, which, you know, I, I, sometimes I'm really reluctant to use the term because I think a lot of people on the left just use it as a cuss word. Um, and I'd like, I'd like the terms to sort of mean something. So to me, I think the most significant aspect of, of neoliberalism is the financialization uh, of, of Western economies, certainly, and the much greater importance of finance uh, in kind of being at the kind of outer edge, the, uh, the cusp, if you will, of profitability. Um, so if that's what neoliberalism is, yeah, modern monetary theory or just kind of a, a, an increasing control, shall we say, over the money supply by, say, political organs, right, like the Treasury rather than the Fed. I think that would probably be part of something that was post-neoliberal. Um, that I don't see coming anytime soon, at least not in Western countries. Okay, Sherwin, uh, go ahead. You have to unmute, buddy, if you're mute. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Professor, I uh, just had a question about uh, Eastern Europe having more conservative social policies and uh, left-wing economics. Do you think it's possible for them to continue using that in the long term as the European Union brings more legal cases against them? I think the European Union has like threatened to cut off the cut funding of Poland, Hungary, other Eastern European countries. Or is, it, is that a sustainable strategy for them? 
Yeah, so I think it is a sustainable strategy because Poland and Hungary are not in trouble with the EU for those reasons, because of their economic policies. Um, right, the phrasing that the European Union uses is, right, quote, rule of law, unquote. And that's really where um, both Poland under law and justice and Hungary under Fidesz have, have begun being disciplined, right? And it's taken a long time for the EU to kind of go through all their processes because they've been trying to do this for a long time. And now finally they're, they're starting to do it. But it's only allowing them to cut off access to certain kinds, my understanding is at least of structural funds, um, which are, you know, funds from the richer countries in the EU to the poorer ones. It's not to say that these funds are not important to Poland and Hungary, they are. But, you know, there's a political decision that these countries need to make, or at least these, these governments need to make. Is it worth it to us to kind of pursue our political goals and just kind of suck it up and take the punishment that the EU's dishing out? Um, for now, it seems like they're willing to do this. Um, and so, again, I think, but this is all kind of directed to the, the treatment of judges and, and the independence of the judiciary and things like that. I mean, these are issues that law and justice in particular ran on explicitly in 2015, right? The judiciary is too independent. It's too full of these old communists from back in, in the Soviet bloc days. And, uh, and, and we need to reform. And they won and they started doing that. And then they got reelected. Um, so I think there's a popular political support for both what Law and Justice and Fidesz are doing. And, um, and I don't see any sign that they're willing to kind of sacrifice their popularity at home, their legitimacy with their own voters um, for, you know, what the EU is trying to tell them that they have to do. And also, I'll just say that the, the EU can't kick them out, right? It's not like if you're bad enough, we'll throw you out of the club. There's just no mechanism to do that. Um, it's not to say that the Europeans couldn't invent one. I suppose they could. Um, but that seems like a long way away in my mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Thomas, um, you're next. All right. Maybe Thomas is not there. I'm going to invite John then. John, you've been invited to speak. There, go ahead, John. You're muted. You come in muted, so everyone, you come in muted, so unmute the first thing you do. John, are you gonna unmute? All right, let's get Thomas. Thomas, you've been invited, so you're you just, I don't know how it works, but you should be able to speak. Mm. You have technical difficulties. <laughs> Maybe there's yeah. human difficulties. <laughs> yeah, the app might be... Uh... It might be, uh, it might still have some, uh, some kinks. Okay. If Thomas is not able to speak and if there are no other questions, um, yeah, Daryl, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Thanks everybody for uh, joining us. And, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Well, I'll be doing this again uh, before long. So thanks everyone. Thanks a lot, Richard. Take care.